We bring you greetings in Jesus' name. It's good to be here today. We, uh, we're glad to hear the things that we've heard. If you're here as a visitor, maybe you think it sounded a little morbid. Spent a little time talking about our mortality and that we're not going to be here very long. But, you know, there's a reality that it's better to be in the house of mourning than in the house of mirth. We could have all been jumping and raising hands and shouting and and praising too. We could have been doing that. But instead we were thinking seriously about the fact that we're here but for a short time. Well, we bring you greetings from Peace Anabaptist Brotherhood in Sunbury. And I was thinking as our brother was sharing about pilgrims and strangers. I don't know you, brother. I heard your name was Heinrich, but I didn't ever meet you before, nor did we coerce what we're going to share about, but you laid a tremendous foundation for what we'd like to talk about. He gave us a general reason to consider our life here and to be pilgrims and strangers. Uh, I'm going to probably get a little more specific about one particular area of that, if you'll allow me to do that. It could be considered a touchy subject, maybe. But I hope that we've had enough of the thought that we're only here for a short time. That we don't get easily offended. That we lay aside past hurts, lay aside the baggage of conflicts, confrontations, and be able to say, you know what, I'm going to hear what this brother has to say, and I'm going to be Berean. I'm going to search it out in Scripture and find out if there's anything to it. Or not. You know, the Bible doesn't say a word about homosexual marriage. It says much about homosexuality. But it never talks about homosexual marriage. So because the Bible is silent on it, should we also be silent on it? How many think we should? Oh, so then we need to take principles of the word of God and make an application that's wise. That makes sense? That is what godliness is about. It's hearing what the Spirit of God has to say and the truth that God saw all this from eternity past. It's not a surprise to him. He could have spelled it out. Thou shalt not marry homosexuals. He could have spelled that out just that simple, but he didn't. He allowed for you and I to look at the Word of God and to take the wisdom of the Word of God and make wise applications to the Word of God. And we need to do that. Turn with me, if you would, to Judges chapter 14. So children, tell me. I noticed you had answers for your, your story this morning. You were on it. So tell me, who was about the weakest man in the Bible? Who do you think might have been about the weakest man in the Bible? That's what I'd like to talk about today. Any ideas? Oh, I see a hand back there. Yes. Ahab. Ahab? Well, you're probably pretty close. Yes, he was a very weak man. He was a very weak man because he could hardly be a man. He left his wife wear the pants. Okay, but there was one that I think was even weaker yet. And yet he gets billed as one of the strongest men in the Bible. Now, does that give you a hint? Who might that be? Yes. Moses, well, no, Moses was actually a meek man. So you got that part, but I'm talking about weak, not meek. So who was the weakest? One of the weakest. What do you think if I said Samson? Where, where did we get a hand back here? I'm sorry. Did I run ahead of you? That's too bad. Samson, we'd like to talk about him today. Well, why would I call him one of the weakest men in the Bible? Because he had tremendous physical strength, and it was supernatural strength many times. But he was one of the weakest men in the Bible because he couldn't control himself. He couldn't control himself. He had no power over himself. Judges chapter 14. Now we know that he was a child of promise to a barren couple. And they had longed for this child... And now they're going to get it. And it was given to them in a miraculous, divine way in the sense that an angel came and told of his coming. 
Can you imagine what the temptation would have been as parents to spoil that child? Just think about that a little bit. And wonder in yourself if it didn't happen. We're going to jump into his life where Samson is now 20 years old. Chapter 14. And Samson went down to Timnath and saw a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and his mother and said, I have seen a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. Now they will forget her for me to wife. Then his father and his mother said unto him, Is there never a woman among the daughters of thy brethren or among all the people that thou goest to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said unto his father, Get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. But his father and his mother knew not that it was of the Lord that he sought an occasion against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. Then went Samson down and his father and his mother to Timnath and came to the vineyards of Timnath. And behold, a young lion roared against him. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And he rent him as he would have rent a kid and had nothing in his hand. But he told not his father or his mother what he had done. And he went down and talked with the woman and she pleased Samson well. And after a time he returned to take her and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees and honey in the carcass of the lion. And he took thereof in his hands and went on eating and came to his father and mother and he gave them. And they did eat, but he told not, told not them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. So his father went down unto the woman and Samson made there a feast, so, for so used the young men to do. And it came to pass when they saw him that they brought thirty companions to be with him. And Samson said unto them, I will now put forth a riddle unto you, if you can certainly declare it me within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you thirty sheets and thirty changes of garments. But if you cannot declare it me, then shall ye give me thirty sheets and thirty changes of garments. And they said unto him, Put forth thy riddle, that we may hear it. And he said unto them, Out of the eater came forth meat, and out of the strong came forth sweetness. And they could not in three days expound the riddle. And it came to pass on the seventh day that they said unto Samson's wife, Entice thy husband that he may declare unto us the riddle, lest we burn thee and thy father's house with fire. Have ye called us to take that ye have? Is it not so? And Samson's wife wept before him and said, Thou dost hate me and lovest me not. Thou hast put forth a riddle unto the children of my people and hast not told it me. And he said unto her, Behold, I have not told it my father nor my mother. And shall I tell it to thee? And she wept before him the seven days while their feast lasted. And it came to pass on the seventh day that he told her because she lay sore upon him. And she told the riddle to the children of her people. And the men of the city said unto him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? And he said unto them, If ye had not plowed with my heifer, ye had not found out my riddle. And the spirit of the Lord came upon him. And he went down to Ashkelon and slew thirty men of them. And took their spoil and gave change of garments unto them, which expounded the riddle. And his anger was kindled, and he went up to his father's house. But Samson's wife was given to his companion, whom he had used as his friend. This is probably one of the saddest chapters in Scripture. Of one of the least spiritual men. God used him in spite of his situation, but don't ever use Samson as an excuse for following your own ways. Samson saw how, pardon me, God saw how Samson was going to be and he accomplished his goals for Israel through Samson in spite of Samson. But I'd like us to think about this a little bit. One of the saddest accounts in the Bible. Number of points I notice in this account. Lust, selfishness, iniquity. What is iniquity? If you want a real definition for iniquity, iniquity is when I put my will ahead of God's will. It might not be a declared thou shalt not sin. My will ahead of God's will. Harmony, we used to have a little folder and in it was a book, Sweet Will of God. I don't even remember, some of you remember that song. Sweet Will of God. My stubborn will at last hath yielded. I would be thine and thine alone. That's what it takes. And that's what Samson doesn't seem to ever have gotten until the very end. And as brother shared, 
one day of not serving Christ. Why? I was 24 years old when I got born again. And I think of all the time that I wasted. Lust, selfishness, and iniquity. I want what I want. I don't care what God wants. God had already revealed his will concerning Samson marrying a Philistine. He had already revealed it. The law declared, you're not to go unto the uncircumcised. You're not to take them as wives. I don't know what he didn't understand about no. But he wasn't willing to hear it. So he disobeyed not only God, but also his parents. His parents challenged him. Are there not any of all the daughters of Israel that you can't find a wife in Israel that you have to go to the uncircumcised heathen? But guess what? He wasn't into hearing God. He wasn't going to hear his parents either. So he dishonored his parents and dishonored their counsel. Now, where he lived was actually closer to Timnah, which was a new Philistine outpost, a colony of the Philistines. It was closer to Timnah than it was to Shiloh. And I would say that Samson's heart was closer to Timnah than it was to Shiloh. Shiloh was the center of worship at that time, the place where you went to meet with God. The place where sacrifice was to take place. Well, I've got news for you. Samson wasn't into sacrifice. If it didn't meet with what met his desires, he wasn't interested. Notice another thing as he goes down to his wedding. I have to understand, in ancient Israel, a wedding was a big affair. Well, you caught that. There were seven days of the feast. That was normal. But it was a big affair. And it wasn't always announced when the man was going to come to take his bride. First, they made the arrangements, which you'll notice in the story here. Then later, they come down for the feast. And that was not always announced. And it was usually the man and his parents and a whole entourage of his family, friends, and those that he was close to back in his hometown. They went down to have the feast. You'll notice it was only Samson and his mother, and his father. Where were his friends? My guess, a man who's given to lustfulness, selfishness, iniquity, and being a bully, probably doesn't have many friends. Obviously, there were none that went with him from his hometown. I noticed that <clears throat> there was a lack of integrity. Now, remember carefully that Samson was a Nazarite. Okay, what did that mean? It means that he was never to have a razor laid to his head. We know that part of the story. He was never to touch anything from the vine. No grapes, no raisins, no wine. His mother wasn't to have any, even while pregnant, any wine or strong drink. And he was not to touch anything unclean. And she wasn't from the time of her pregnancy. All dead carcasses of unclean animals are unclean. So his very touching to kill the lion made him ceremonially unclean. That was okay. Now he goes back and this thing is decaying. It's decaying. I had a great uncle lived over here on the south of the mountain and he said he always liked eating squirrels until he said he was had a cow that died and he didn't want to pay the shit on us to haul it off so he drug it up in the mountain and left it rot. And there he went out squirrel hunting and he saw the skin stretched over the carcass and he walked up, gave it a kick, and he said, the squirrels scattered out in every direction. <laughs> that was the last time he ate squirrels. <laughs> I don't know what he thought. That's all they are is bushy-tailed rats, right? <laughs> well, unclean. That decaying carcass was enough shelter to supply home for a swarm of honeybees. The honey was clean. But inside the carcass of a dead animal was very unclean by Jewish law. And so the fact that he touched that animal and now he's eating and now he takes the honey back and gives it to his parents and doesn't tell them where it came from, he had no desire to obey God's laws. He wasn't into it. He's going to do what he wants to do. And that's all he cares. <clears throat> well, notice he gets down to uh, the wedding and they had to hire friends for him. Thirty friends were hired. 
You know, it turned out that they were no friends at all, were they? Beware. This was all just cultural pressure. He could have went down there, had a quiet little marriage, married this woman, and went home again. But cultural pressure said you needed to have your friends. So instead of having friends, since he didn't have any, he had to hire some. Cultural pressure. Beware. Our culture is different. We're not going to hire friends. But we can come under the same cultural pressures to extravagance that Samson did. And so that stood out to me. Samson indulges in gambling at his wedding feast. He initiated this riddle and the gambling, the wager that went with it. To us, big deal. 30 suits of clothing and 30 sheets. So what? You go to Goodwill, $100, you probably got it. That was not the case in Samson's day. Those 30 sheets and 30 sets of clothing equated to about 30 acres of flax. Last year, I, I was going to bring some along and I forgot about it. I, I was going to bring a little bit of flax along so you can visualize it. But last year, I planted my first crop of flax, just a small crop, just to play around with to show children what was involved in clothing making back in the day. Well, this stuff gets hand-sewed in April. It gets hand-weeded, and you should do it barefooted in May. And then it gets hand-harvested in June. Each stalk pulled out by the root, the dirt shaken off. And we're talking about you want to have it intense. So, you know, for every foot, you've got probably around 50 stalks. They all get hand-harvested and shaken off. They then get pulled through a comb to take the seeds off when they're dry. They're stacked in bundles. You've got to take them back out into the weather or put them in a creek for a couple of days for the redding process to break down the fibers. Now it goes through a break, wooden pieces that bash together like fingers and break up the pith that's in the middle of this little tiny stalk with flax fibers in it. Now you put it through the heckles to pull out the junk, the pith, the best you can, scutching it with a wooden machete to knock it out and get it even further refined. Until you're said and done, you have very little for all your work. And that's before you sit down to the spinning wheel and spin it into thread. And then it goes to the loom where the shuttle is passed back and forth to make your fabric before you can begin to make clothing. About 30 acres and a year's labor are involved in this wager. It was no little bet that Samson made and unfortunately, Samson did not have the money to lose. He didn't have it. He was betting, pretty sure that he was going to win. So we see that Samson's wife, on her wedding week, she endures threats, extortion, fear for herself and her family that leads her to lying, deceit, and betrayal. All this in a wedding feast. Samson, though he's married, he's made the, the covenant, he has not practiced leaving and cleaving. You'll notice in verse 16 it says, I have not told it my father nor my mother, and shall I tell it thee? Like, who do you think you are? Wait a minute. God commanded you leave father and mother and cleave to wife. And you become one flesh. Well, I suspect that they had become one flesh. Physically. But they definitely had missed something. There was something missing. Because he favored his parents yet over his wife. This has led to then murder and theft and unleashed anger. Which led one step further to his wife being given since he left angry his wife being given to another man. So adultery became part of the wedding feast. Vows unkept. Well, she was given, it says, verse 20, Samson's wife was given to, the compa to his companion whom he had used as his friend. I'm going to guess this was his best man he hired. Question's always been in my mind is if he's the best man, why didn't she marry him in the first place? 
I'm not sure where we come up with that terminology. And chapter 15 speaks of his unbridled anger when he finds out what happened with his wife. And Samson goes off and lights a whole bunch of the Philistines' fields on fire. Philistines so angry come back and kill the woman and her whole family. Burnt them. Burnt them to death. So I say it's one of the saddest things. This fiasco that was supposed to be a wedding became a chaotic scene of unashamed sin because of one key element. Gambling. The title of my message today is Don't Bet on It. <clears throat> Recently, I was sitting at home on a Saturday, uh, happened to be in the house for a little break, and the phone rang, and some woman was on the line who said she's with Penn State, and she'd like to know if I would be willing to take a few minutes survey. Well, usually I don't have time for that, and I just either tell them nicely no, or, or the phone gets disconnected somehow. <clears throat> But I decided, you know what, I'd like to take this survey since I have a little time. And she had already told me what it was about. It was about gambling. So in this uh, survey on gambling, she wanted to know what my personal gambling practices are. And what my addictions are. <clears throat> and we went on for 10 minutes with questions and there were a lot of just simply no's. And she says, I've never met anybody like you. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Well... Anyway, if it weren't for him, I might be something totally different than I am today. But you know, I'm old enough now, 60 years old, that I can remember in the United States of America, if you wanted to go to a casino to gamble, you would have had to travel to Las Vegas, Nevada. There were no casinos anywhere else in the country. I'm also old enough to remember when the first casinos came up in Atlantic City. And I guess that's why I have a little challenge being all enamored with any politician who made his fortune through, uh, through gambling. Uh, we'll let it at that. Lots of them did. <clears throat> I hardly see that as a bastion of righteousness. <clears throat> I can remember when in Pennsylvania all gambling was illegal except for one highly regulated horse race. Penn National at Grantville. That was the only place you could go in Pennsylvania to gamble. <clears throat> I can remember when there wasn't a Pennsylvania lottery. And when it started, it was highly promoted as a, being a benefit to the senior citizens of our state. But I have heard many people use that as an excuse for participating. But I have never found one who, when challenged, if you win, are you going to give it to the seniors? That said, yes. So, was it really for the benefit of the seniors? Racetracks are now multiple places, casinos, multiple places. As she went on with her thing, I was given revelation of some new things that I wasn't aware of. Internet gambling and international offshore betting. You can go out just into international waters and get on a boat and you can do all the gambling you want to ever do to your heart's content. And you don't even have to be there. You can do it online. There are lotteries, there are sweepstakes, there are raffle tickets, there are bingo. Bingo was not legal to play for money when I was a young man. <clears throat> there are sports pools that account for thousands of dollars in the public workplaces. There are poker and games of chance. And then there are those that get even a little darker, the scams. I know a man in Myerstown, I don't think he lives anymore, but anyhow, he won a sweepstakes. And amazing thing is, he never entered. But he won a sweepstakes in Jamaica. And he was the winner of a brand new Mercedes Benz. And all he had to do was pay the taxes and the changeover and the titles and everything. And they're going to ship him this car. And $10,000 into it, he still had not seen a car. And my sons knew the man and felt really bad for him. He's an older man and he was being taken advantage of. And they called the state police. And the state police were there when, when this guy from Jamaica called and was asking for more money. And they handed the phone to the state police. And the guy just cursed that state policeman right out over the phone. Says, give me that back to Mr. So-and-so because he's who I'm talking to, not to you. And the police said, you know, as long as he sends the money, we can't do a thing about these people. 
cheating, putting on a false front, fraud, leeching. You know, I am your friend. Many years ago, before I was converted, I managed a TV and appliance store, and we brought in lots of used. We had free delivery and free removal of your old appliances. So we brought in lots of used everything. And we had lots of console, the big old tube televisions with beautiful wood consoles that were almost as nice as the furniture you buy today. Anyway, they were shot. They weren't any good. We wouldn't be had, had them coming in if they were still good. But we had some guy who kept coming. He wanted to buy our console televisions, the old ones. And, you know, he gave us $5 a piece for him and loaded them up in a van and he went. And we never knew what he was doing with these until we find out. He would go back. He would polish them up, make them look really nice. He'd put them in his van. He drove up to the racetrack at Penn National. And when winners were coming out with their money, he'd say, hey, buddy, come here. And he'd sell them these junk televisions. Well, it was probably better if they couldn't watch him anyway, right? But what about the man's deception? He figured, hey, easy come, easy go. They got it easy. I'm going to take it easy. As a young man, a young married man, working in that kind of situation with an ungodly owner, uh, sometimes we got into some interesting situations and I was an ungodly young man, so I was not, not free from them myself. But gambling was one thing that didn't tempt me. My Jewish boss was very tempted with it. He was usually a very wise businessman, but he loved to gamble. And so he used to always talk about going down to Atlantic City, and I said, I had no interest. But one time he drug me along because we were at a show in King of Prussia, and he says, oh, all done. We're going down to AC. Oh, Bob. Anyway, I went down. I knew the man's situation. I knew his financial situation. He got $2,000 out of the business cash, and he went down. And I watched him being a big shot, playing $100 a hand, blackjack, and lose $2,000 in just a couple hours. Then he said, well, he said, I'd really like to go, but I'd really like to stay, but he says, I'm going to have to go. And the, the pit boss says, well, hi. He says, oh, he says, uh, running short of funds. Hey, listen, no problem. We'll, we'll float you alone. And I saw them give him $1,000 and put it on his debt. And I saw him lose that $1,000 all in the same afternoon. Here was a man who lived in government-subsidized housing, because he could barely just make ends meet. The business was young. We didn't have a lot of profits. And he lost $3,000. And in 1980, $3,000 was a chunk of change. If I can give you a relationship, in Lancaster County, my father and I built a brand new house in Mountville area, all custom. And we had it for sale for $68,000 and could hardly sell it. So $3,000 was a chunk of change. It was a chunk of change. In Atlantic City, while I was with him, he uh, tried to share as a man who was 15 years older than me about these women standing on the street corners. Those are prostitutes. He says, you want one? I'll pay for it. No, I, no I, I'm not going there. He says, you will sometime. No, I said, I'm not going there. Maybe I was like Peter saying about the cock crow, but... Uh, because I was all in my own strength. But that was one thing I purposed. I'm not, I'm not going down that road, the road of adultery. But you'll find that often follows gambling. The vices go with it. Prostitution. In Las Vegas, Nevada, they have a phone book where prostitution is legalized completely. And they have 800 pages of advertisements in the yellow pages for prostitutes in Las Vegas. Theft. Alcoholism, drugs, domestic violence, murder, all follow this thing wherever it is. So, where did God say, thou shalt not gamble? Hmm, that's a little bit like the homosexual marriage thing. He didn't exactly say it, but there's enough of principle in Scripture for us to come up with a wise conclusion about the subject. Turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Let's talk about what is the root, what's the driving force, what causes people to go uh, 2,000 miles across the country to, to get to some gambling resort. And the bottom line is lust. 
Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taken occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without a law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taken occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy, the commandment holy, and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me. By that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold unto sin. See, where did I want to break off reading? 13, I guess. The idea here, the, the relationship is that that sin that he was talking about was covetousness. Lust, the desire for things. So lust and covetousness are together, are one. We talked about Samson, his account, the lust of the eye. He looked upon this Philistine woman and she pleased him well. Not because she was a godly virgin woman. That wasn't the case. It was the lust of the eye. The lust of the flesh. His own desires. Wanting to fulfill them. And the pride of life. That ruled his life. And so it is. That so much of gambling. Is based on this principle. Covetousness. The mother of all sins. Hmm. Interesting. Proverbs chapter 30 you want to turn to it this isn't one of solomon's proverbs but it's a valuable proverb proverbs chapter 30 and verse 15 and 16 the horse leech hath two daughters crying give give there are three things that are never satisfied yea four things say not it is enough the grave the barren womb the earth that is not filled with water, and the fire that saith not, it is enough. And lust is all of these things. Covetousness is all of these things. It's never satisfied. It can't be satisfied. Just turn a few pages over to Ecclesiastes. And here Solomon is writing, and he's sharing from his own life experiences and the emptiness of them. In chapter 2, he says, I said in my heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. And behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of mirth, what doeth it? I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom and to lay hold on folly till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. I made me great works. I build me houses, I planted me vineyards, I made me gardens and orchards and planted trees in them of all kinds of fruit. I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens, hand servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold, the peculiar treasures of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me and whatsoever mine eye desired, I kept not them, kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy for my heart rejoiced in all my labor And this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. And there was no profit under the sun. All that man's heart could desire, Solomon had. And yet he still recognized there's no contentment in it. It's not there. Lust and covetousness And possession can never do it. It doesn't add up. Chapter 4, and just verses 4 through 8. Again, I considered all travail and every right work that 
For this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Better is a handful with quietness than both hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone and there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother. Yet is there no end of all his labor. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches. Neither saith he, for whom do I labor? And behold, pardon me, and bereave my soul of good. This also is vanity. Yea, it is a sore travail. Here's a man. He doesn't have anybody to leave it to. He's working like a maniac his whole life and stacking it up. I can relate to that. I have an uncle. He was my favorite uncle. Shouldn't really have favorite uncles, I guess, but he was the one I was the closest to. He was only eight years older than me. Spent his whole life collecting together the Johannes Hess homestead in Lidditz. He bought it. He restored it back to a lot of its original condition. It was built in 17, uh, 1730, so it was a very, very early Lancaster County home. Then he took the inventory from when Johannes died in 1778, and he tried to restore every piece of the original furnishings of that house back to the house. He spent his whole life doing it. Never married till the end when he married a man. And when he died, they made eight days of sale. And it all went every which way all over again. All that he had was all dispersed. And all of that family heritage that he had gathered together was also dispersed. Yes, I can understand that. Ecclesiastes 5 Verse 8, if thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter, for he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there is higher than they. Moreover, the profit of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they are increased to eat them. And what good is there to the owner thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. What don't we understand about that picture? Who was richer than Solomon? Who could speak out of the experience of saying, you know what? It doesn't work. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't bring what I had hoped to find. And so we are warned there about a couple things, but in all that he wrote in Ecclesiastes, you'll notice there is that man who just sits and chews on his hand. He's, he's got his arms folded because he's being lazy. Laziness is not what's being promoted as the opposite of, of um, this issue. It's actually a sister. Laziness is a sister to covetousness. <clears throat> the motive... What's our motive? Is it greed or is it need? I'd like to paraphrase a verse we have in Scripture that says about the thief. Because remember, this whole thing of lust, covetousness, and laziness is what drives a thief to do what he does. Thieves are lazy. If they weren't lazy and they wanted something, go work for it. But instead, they take, take yours or take mine. Thieves are lazy. That's what it is. Someone will work real hard not to have to work. They're lazy. And so, the motive, greed or need. But let me paraphrase. Let him that gambled, gamble no more. But let him work with his hands, that thing which is good, that he might have to give to them that are in need. So the question was asked, should I only work the hours that I absolutely need to? Maybe. But if I want to really obey that scripture to have that I might give, then I need to labor a little bit more than for what I need so that I do have to give. That's important. Sacrificial living for the purpose of sacrificial giving doesn't have any room for theft or gambling in it. Do I need or is it greed? 
I want something and I don't want to work for it. I take advantage of others. I take advantage of the poor. Gambling has been a bane to the poor for ages. Come with me to Haiti. You'll see little booths that look like a bus stop. And it says bank on the side. But don't put any deposits there, please. It's a lottery place. And it's corrupt. And they take advantage of the poorest of the poorest of the poor who can't feed their children, but will go there on the hope that they're going to hit it big and never have to suffer in poverty anymore. We used to do sharpening when we lived in Haiti. Tools. And these thugs would come to us with double, double-sided knives that they used to stab people. And they want us to sharpen them for them. Finally, we say, sorry, we don't do double knives. Sorry. Double-edged knives. Brass knuckles. Standard operating tools for the lottery guys because they carried large quantities of money. Greed is always the enemy of contentment. I want something for nothing is the motive. No amount of wealth can buy contentment. Covetousness, discontent, and laziness is a deadly trio. Jeremiah 6.13, God has a comment that he speaks through Jeremiah about the people of his day. Our problem is not a new problem. It's an old one. And I'm just going to break in to one verse. Jeremiah 6, verse 13. For them, for from the least of them, even unto the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even unto the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. So we'll find deception and covetousness often are close companions. And God is offering his complaint against it. Ezekiel chapter 33. Keep going back a little bit further in your Bible. Ezekiel 33. God again warns us about covetousness. Verse 31. And they come unto thee as the people cometh. And they sit before thee as my people. And they hear thy words but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. It's what drives them. It's what motivates them. The New Testament, Colossians. Book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 1 says, If ye then be risen with Christ, and we sang it this morning, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek these, those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall he also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is Idolatry. Do we take that serious enough? How many of us would be into embracing a stone image? Giving it kisses? Spending time kneeling before it? How many of us would be into that? Come up over the mountain. There's a Hindu temple. Largest one in North America. The Viraj. And you can see it all happening right there. If they let you in. But most of us would say we're not into that. But if we're not careful... Inadvertently, our covetousness can lead us into that same sort of demeanor, idolatry. Because verse 6 says, For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. So you were like that at one time, but you've been set free. You've been washed. You've been cleansed. You've been redeemed for something better than this. So why let covetousness rule in our lives? 1 Timothy chapter 6 has quite a few things to say on the subject. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. 
And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine, which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railing, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men, of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. You remember the movement back in the early 80s? Name it and claim it. Yes, if you're truly a Christian, you just tell God what you want. I want a pink Cadillac, God, and he's going to give it to you. Maybe you don't remember it, and that's a good thing if you don't. That was a powerful thing going on. Both to the corruption of Christianity and to the disgust of unbelievers watching. Is that what this is supposed to be about? No. Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. Anybody leave the house this morning and not need anything? You're hungry? Didn't eat anything this morning? Okay, there's one. How about yesterday morning? Okay, so you did have food, you just didn't eat any. Oh, okay, all right. But you did have food. Uh, okay, then there's food in your house. Yes, I felt pretty safe that you probably had food in your house. <laughs> How about clothing? Anybody have to get up this morning and wonder what am I going to wear? Or which am I going to wear? Huh? <laughs> yes. Well, having food and raiment, let us be there with content. Everything else is extras. It's all bonus. It's above and beyond. God says we should be content if we have food and clothing. And, of course, we're living in temperate zone. We need a, a roof over our head. We do. Some, some kind of roof over our head. Get us out of the weather. That wasn't always necessary in the Middle East. Nevertheless, it's important for us to keep our focus. So, having food and raiment, let us be there with content. But they that will be rich... Fall into temptation, a snared into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil. I've got news for you. The love of money is the root of all gambling. It is. You can switch those in and out. It's the love of money. And so if it's the root of all evil, then I have to conclude that gambling is also evil. Which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Jump up to verse 17. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. That they do good and that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation. And then one last scripture I'd like to turn to, Titus. <clears throat> Titus chapter 1 <clears throat> and verses 7 and 9. And this is giving the qualifications of a bishop, but let's think about it. Brothers, every one of us should be preparing our hearts to be used of God somehow. So it's not just say, oh, it's just for a bishop, just for an elder. It's not like that. Let's think about what's being said. For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may also be able to sound, by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. So, what is filthy lucre? That is an old English terminology that we don't use so much today. What is it? Now, we lived in Haiti and you never knew when you were getting change in the marketplace where it was going to be pulled out of. 
and it was dirty and it was sweaty and it was filthy lucre. Now, that wasn't what we're talking about. Filthy lucre simply explained is unearned gain. I'm interested in unearned gain. I want money and I didn't have to work for it. And so I'm going to throw this out for what it's worth. You know, if you're involved in a business and your business has stock and you'd like to support or you have a business you really feel like you'd like to be a part of and you want to own stock in that business, that's all good and fine. And commodities, if you're a farmer and you want to be sure that you've got the the grains you need to feed out your livestock through such and such a time, the dealing in commodities can be fine. But I question the man who's sitting in his house and he's buying up commodities and he's speculating. And the last thing in the world he wants to happen is to have those commodities delivered into his driveway. If that's not just a form of gambling. And it has messed up the market for many a farmer. The farmer who worked hard and got nothing when he sold his stuff. And the guy who made lots of money and never even touched his stuff. Just a question. So one time I'm on the telephone. Again, one of these times I talked to the guy on the phone. Anyway, he's trying to sell me life insurance. And I told him I don't have life insurance. He says, you don't? He says, well, what are you investing in? And I said, I invest in stock and bonds. He says, really? Yeah, I said, stock is in the barn. Bonds are with my children. (laughs) Click. (laughs) May we be careful what motivates us, what drives us, what takes us forward. May we each, and I'm saying this because remember I told you when I was a young man, there was none of these things were here. None of this gambling was even a temptation. It wasn't there. Now, where do you walk into a convenience store? You're not confronted immediately with with a, uh, at least the, the draw, some that are trying to get your attention to their gambling. May we each develop strong spiritual conviction as to what is not ethical, even if it's legal. And may we each answer these questions. Would Jesus gamble? He who watched them gamble over his clothing in front of him while he was naked on the cross, would he gamble? If he were here, can a Christian glorify God by gambling? I grew up in a very liberal setting. Our Sunday school teacher was part of the fire company, and the fire company had a raffle. And he knew it wasn't quite right to sell these raffle tickets. It was kind of gambling, so he didn't want to do it, so he just bought them all himself. Guess what? He won. He wanted a new television set. Would have been a better place to take a stand. Can I run with the world and not be affected by the world? My answer is, don't bet on it. 